Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome, everybody, to another episode. We're thrilled to be with you, as always. Thanks for joining us. You know, you and I just came back from a trip where we met some of our podcast listeners. We did? In California. Who did we meet? Oh, right. Yeah, because uh, you spoke. I right? did. I and did. we met some podcast listeners there. And just prior to that, you were on another trip that our listeners need to hear about. I had an awesome experience leading our pilgrimage to Spain and to Fatima. It was a really beautiful beautiful, grace-filled experience. We had about 40 people on the pilgrimage. Um, Many people had never even been out of the country before. Uh, Some of them very first time in Fatima, some of them very first time in Spain. It, yeah, and the the graces were flowing. I I really, really enjoyed giving these presentations on the teachings of John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and of course the all the mystery surrounding Our Lady of Fatima and John Paul II and the Theology of the Body. It was thrilling. Some of the highlights for me were seeing up close, it's now in a little museum, seeing up close the crown for the statue of Our Lady of Fatima into which John Paul II placed the bullet that went through his body that he believed, as he said, one hand pulled the trigger and another hand guided the bullet and he believed that was Our Lady of Fatima. If you don't know the history there, you got to read my little book called Eclipse of the Body, where I tell the whole story of Fatima, not the whole story, but I, I the story of Fatima that pertains to the theology of the body mm-hmm. and the assassination attempt of John Paul II, and why this bullet is so significant to me. The blood that John Paul II shed on May 13th, 1981, Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, the blood he shed that day, I believe was shed for many reasons, but a biggie. It was shed for the spread of the theology of the body. Mm. And if you want to learn more about that, you have to read my little book about it, Eclipse of the Body. Um, but another highlight was the tomb of St. John on the Cross. It, I just didn't expect to be as moved as I was. Uh, I mean, I expected I would be moved, but I, I really felt like John of the Cross was, I don't know, he's... He was one of the main sources of inspiration for John Paul II's teaching, and I felt like I was in the presence of my spiritual grandfather in that Mm -hmm. sense, because he's the, in many ways, the spiritual father of John Paul II, and I really felt a closeness to him. We went to the tomb of Teresa of Avila as well. That was very moving, but I was particularly particularly moved being at the tomb of John of the Cross. It was really, really special. Mm -hmm. And just a shout out to all the pilgrims. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, it was such a thrill to be on that journey with you. Really, really special bond that we all formed together mm-hmm. on that journey. I, I remember everybody so fondly. And uh, my highlights were, of course, getting updates from you throughout the pilgrimage. Um, and sometimes you'd call on FaceTime just to kind of show mm-hmm. me what was yeah, going what we on, what things you were seeing. So I felt very happy to get those glimpses of life beyond my little zone that I was 
continuing to be in, starting school and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And I, I, I filmed some videos for YouTube while I was on the pilgrimage as well. Uh -huh. So check out on our YouTube channel those little, uh, the, their YouTube shorts, they call them. But if you just go to our regular YouTube channel, Theology of the Body Institute YouTube channel, you'll you'll find these YouTube shorts as they get posted. Uh -huh. Do you have any other updates about the work of the Institute? I do. The sadness, the great sadness of this past pilgrimage was that you, Wendy, were not with me. Yes. But my great joy is... The next pilgrimage in 2023, so next year... I'm coming. You're coming along. Yeah. It's kind of, sort of, an official Ask Christopher West hosted by Wendy West podcast pilgrimage. <laughs> and we are taking a river cruise on the Seine River in France. And we're, I believe we're departing from Paris. And we're headed the whole way to the birthplace of St. Therese of Lisieux. Mm-hmm. And the theme for the pilgrimage next year is going to be Theology of the Body and the Little Way of St. Therese. There's also an extension that you can do where we begin in Lourdes if you want to do that. But this is going to fill up. We're going to have the whole boat all to ourselves. There are a limited number of cabins. It's going to fill up. So if this interests you, if you want to join Wendy and me on this cruise and dive into the teachings of Therese and her little way and how it's all related to the theology of the body, how the two are intertwined. Then check out the link below and reserve your spot today. <laughs> Can't wait to be with yeah, you on that one, Wendy. I'm looking forward to it It's going to be really special. Definitely. Shall I share a question from yes. a patron? Let's do it. Okay, this is from a patron named Mora. Hello, Mora. Thank you so much for the support you offer our work. We can't do it without you, Mora. I have a question regarding the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. From what I understand, the Western Church has a tradition of belief that Mary died at the end of her human life, then was assumed into heaven, body and soul, by the power of God. My mind always wrestles with the thought of her death as I contemplate the fourth glorious mystery. Does theology of the body speak to what would have happened to Mary's body and soul at the end of her earthly life? Mara, I love this question. It's an area of great interest to me. Uh, at the Theology of the Body Institute, we offer an entire course on the Blessed Mother, and we do look very intently at the doctrine of of Mary's assumption, body and soul, into heaven. And I address this with some teaching of John Paul II in the extended catechesis he gave on the Blessed Mother in the 1990s. Uh, he doesn't speak of it specifically in his Theology of the Body catechesis, but in this extended catechesis on the Blessed Mother, he does say very directly that Mary died. And, and the basis he gives for this belief that Mary died was that she was a follower of Christ, and she went the way Christ went, and Christ died, then rose, then ascended. So John Paul II says Mary died. We have no reason to believe she didn't die. In the Eastern tradition, they speak of the Dormition, 
the falling asleep of Mary. Maybe there's a little more mystery surrounding it. And I think, you know, we need to breathe with both lungs, as John Paul II himself said, meaning we draw from the tradition of the West and from the East. If we're only looking at one side or the other, uh, we're going to only be breathing with one lung. You know, you'll get some oxygen, but you're not going to be getting all the oxygen you need. So it's important to look at why does the Eastern Church not come right out and say she died, and why does it use this word dormition and kind of shrouded in a little more mystery? And I think there's a reason for that, because, I mean, nobody was there, nobody witnessed what happened. Uh, if she died and then she was assumed bodily into heaven, which we believe as Catholics, then there must have been some form of resurrection, right? Uh, but again, this is kind of shrouded in mystery, and and I don't know that I can say much more than that about it, but I will say this. Why is this teaching important? It's important because it's the declaration that the redemption that Christ won has not only been fully given, it's been fully received, right? Mary's, both her immaculate conception and her bodily assumption into glory are declarations that the redemption has been fully accomplished, fully poured out in the Redeemer, and fully received in the fully redeemed, who is Mary. So Mary is truly participating in the fullness of redemption, and the fullness of redemption, and here, Theology of the Body shines a bright light on this, the fullness of redemption is not just the salvation of our souls, right? We often hear this expression, Jesus came to save souls. Uh, well, there's a right way to understand that and a wrong way to understand that. When we understand soul as the whole human person, body and soul, okay, then we can say Jesus came to save souls. But in the modern world, we have this very ruptured, dualistic concept of the human person as a soul trapped in a body. And we think of the body as an afterthought, we think of the body as just raw material that's going to return to dust, and that's the end of the story. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed, right? And Mary's assumption bodily into glory is the declaration that one of our own, a human person, a human person, one one who was like us, right? And and Jesus was a divine person. He was like us in all things but sin, but he was a divine person. Mary is a human person conceived without sin because of the fullness of redemption, and because of that fullness of redemption, she participates bodily in glory. This is what we mean when we say Mary is our hope, right? She has already experienced what we hope to experience. We hope to experience all of the redemption, and Mary already has. The body is not an afterthought, right? If we have a concept of the afterlife as the idea of the, the soul finally being liberated from the prison of the body, this is not Christianity. That's Platonic thought from the philosopher Plato, but it has crept into the minds of a lot of Christians, because how can we believe in this resurrection of the body? We, the evidence is against it, right? Mm. We put the body in the ground, it returns to dust. But, as I'm sure I've said many times on this podcast before, if God can gather the dust together at the beginning of time, 
He can gather that dust together at the end of time and breathe his life into it. Mary has already experienced this fullness of redemption, body and soul. I'll add one more thought here. Since we were just in Spain and and I got to give a lot of teaching on the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, she would experience such intimacy with Jesus in the Eucharist on occasion that she would levitate bodily, like she would float up into the rafters of the church after receiving the Eucharist. And she comments on this. She says, well, what does this tell us? What's the theological point? The point is, as she says, God doesn't only want our soul, he wants our body too. Mm. That's the final point. That's the, the whole teaching of Mary's assumption. God not only came to save souls through Jesus Christ, God sent his son in the flesh, not to save us from the flesh, but to save the flesh so that our body and soul might participate forever in glory. That's the whole mystery and teaching of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. Did she die? Well, in the West we say she did. In the East there's a little more mystery that kind of covers that or veils that. Mm. I'll just share some of my own journey in regards to Mary. I hope this is helpful also to our listeners. I have had a couple of encounters with the Blessed Mother um, in my life that have been so helpful. One was in the context of a retreat on Mary where we were learning about Ignatian prayer, and we were focusing Ignatian prayer on gospel stories about Mary. And in Ignatian prayer, one of the ways that St. Ignatius taught people to pray was to really prayerfully engage our imagination and to read a short gospel um, story and then place ourselves in that scene of what is happening there and try to just imagine with our, you know, with the Holy Spirit guiding us, we hope, a little bit more of what it would be like to be present there. So, for example, if you would take, say, the wedding feast at Cana, or the Annunciation, you know, gospel stories that really feature Mary, it can be a way to prayerfully encounter her. And that was an experience that I had that was so helpful to me because I began to find Mary as a friend to me in a whole new way through those prayer experiences. Another thing that was really powerful for me was reading John Paul II's letter, Mother of the Redeemer, that he wrote where he walks through um, her life and kind of reflects on her as a woman of faith, that how little she might really have known for certain, how much she had to trust in the little that she had heard from the Lord and hold on to that throughout her life. And I, I could really relate to that. Um, I could relate to her in a whole new way by reading those reflections of Pope John Paul II. And I I mention this because, Maura, your question flowed out of contemplating the mysteries of the rosary, which is a beautiful way to get to know the Blessed Mother. But if you're feeling sort of stuck here, I just wanted to encourage you to explore other ways that could really deepen your relationship with the Blessed Mother and, and help you to kind of see the mystery with new eyes. While you were talking there, Wendy, I, I went and I grabbed my 
my study guide for the Mary course that we teach here at the Institute. And I just wanted to read this quote directly from John Paul II. He says, some theologians have maintained that the Blessed Virgin did not die and was immediately raised from earthly life to heavenly glory. However, this opinion was unknown until the 17th century, he says, whereas a common tradition actually exists which sees Mary's death as her entry into heavenly glory. Since Christ died, he goes on, it would be difficult to maintain the contrary for his mother. The mother's not superior to the son who underwent death giving it a new meaning and changing it into a means of salvation. To share in his resurrection, Mary had first to share in his death. The experience of death personally enriched the Blessed Virgin. By undergoing mankind's common destiny, she can more effectively exercise her spiritual motherhood towards those mm. approaching the last moment of mm. their lives. Yes, that is so true. Yep. So that's, that's in a, a collection of talks that John Paul II gave on the Blessed Mother in the 90s. The book is called Theotokos. Uh, I don't think it's in print anymore, but um, yeah, you can look it up and maybe get a used copy of it. Theotokos. Mm, very good. Ready for the next question? Yes. This is from a listener named Blake. Hello, Blake. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I am newly coming back into a deep relationship with Christ and my heritage in the faith. Woohoo! That's awesome, Blake. As a 37-year-old baptized Catholic, I am the only child of parents that divorced when I was an infant. Oh, I'm sorry. My now deceased father gave me playboys as a young child mm, to mercy. encourage hypermasculinity and objectification of mercy, women. Mercy, mercy. And my mother was very reserved about sexuality. I became lost in masturbation. It led to never having deep intimacy with my wife. My dysfunction played into my wife's own history of sexual trauma to the extent that we decided a few years ago not to have children. I, though, have healed enough in the past year to recognize a prim primordial yearning in my heart to be a father. Ooh, this is a grace at work. Wow. It has largely come from revering the stable and beautiful Holy Family, and Joseph in particular. He's become the chaste, kind, virtuous father I never had. Mm. Joseph has also taught me the joy of fatherhood, and I'm deeply grieving for this loss. My wife is too traumatized, filled with shame and her own grief to talk about it, and there are not many resources for childless fathers was wondering if you have any thoughts about how I can find purpose without the joy of children. God bless you, Blake. God bless you, brother. There is a mighty, mighty work of grace unfolding in your life. And my encouragement to you is just keep riding this wave, brother. It's, it's in your life. It's already arrived. The wave is here. Ride it, ride it, ride it the whole way to glory. I can't predict where it's going to take you, uh, but I do know that this wave is going to take you into glory. Um, mm. I, there's so much stirring in my my heart and mind just listening to what w Wendy has read here of of your story, and I, I I I I'm not sure exactly which direction to go here, but I, I want to invite you to take upon your shoulders a mission. Uh, it's something you said yes to the day you married your wife. Uh, 
and that is to be your wife's number one intercessor, mm-hmm. to pray for her before the Lord, for her healing, for her sanctification, for her salvation. She's, as you've already shared, she's very wounded. Uh, your prayers, brother, can go a long way for your wife. And I hear there's a suffering in your heart now that's maybe a new suffering. It's the pang of a yearning for fatherhood. And you're in a marriage where there's so much pain and grief and shame, as you said, uh, such deep wounds that it seems that's not going to be a possibility. But I want to underline seems. The very pain you feel in this this um, lack of communion, you, you are desiring to be a father. Your wife is not desiring to be a mother. That lack of communion and the pain that that causes your heart, Blake, opened up and offered as intercession for your wife can go a long, long way in bringing healing to your wife. In this life or the next, that pain offered up will bear tremendous fruit. I'm, I'm thinking here of a retreat that I did with Dr. Bob Schutz, and we offer this for our patrons. Uh, I would recommend, even if it's, you know, just pay $10 for a month and, and then cancel if you just want to watch this retreat and be done with it, that would give you access to this retreat, at least for uh, the span of a month. Of course, we would love it if you would stay on as a patron to, to support our work. But if, if that's not possible, just pay the $10 once, watch this retreat with Dr. Bob Schutz and me, and then, and then cancel if you need to. But, but please, please dive into this retreat that Bob and I offered about uh, just beginning the journey of sexual healing. You're already mm-hmm. on it, but I think, that of, of course, for you and for me and for everyone, there's always more healing that we can experience. We can never say, I'm healed. We can never say, I've arrived. There's nothing left to do in this life. No, there's always more. There's always deeper union with Jesus. There's always deeper healing that we can experience as we continue to walk with the Lord. So I, I want to encourage you to enter into that retreat I did with Dr. Bob Schutz. There's another retreat I did with Andrew Kamiski and his team from Desert Stream, uh, also that's on the patron community website and you'd have access to. So I'd, I'd recommend that you look at that. That will give you another look from a complementary perspective as to what sexual healing can look like. It's going to be a long journey, brother, but the Lord is with you. The Lord is not only the destiny, he himself said, I am the way, right? So he's with you along the way of this journey. Um, Wendy, what are you, what are your thoughts here? I, I see all that you're sharing. It's so beautiful. There is, we're just tasting a part of, you know, a beautiful story of grace coming in to heal in a very very painful situation. And I'm so grateful, especially for the the ways that Blake is experiencing kind of a new being fathered and and experiencing St. Joseph. So powerful. Loving him as he always needed to be loved and how his earthly father failed to love him, failed to 
to reverence his innocence as a boy, failed to treasure him and guide him into a, a gradual growth into manhood that would lead him to be a true gift. Um, and, and I see St. Joseph is doing that. And I just, I think there's also a step there where your own earthly father, Blake, also probably did not receive that kind of fathering. And I think as you're experiencing healing, I know you said your father has is now deceased, you can be praying for his healing and purification as well. Like that intercession for the one who wounded you is like very difficult. And you probably have to experience a certain amount of healing first, but, but you have Blake. And so to pray for him, um, I think will bear also a lot of fruit for your relationship with the Lord, with understanding your own story. It could even be a source of healing for your mother. So there's a lot of grace, as Christopher's saying. And I think kind of those three people, your wife, your father, and your mother, are the three that you are most called to be interceding for right now. And and see what develops from that, because you can see already in your own life that God can do amazing things. I'm thinking here of something I wrote about in the Mary study guide. And since I have it pulled out from that other question, uh, I'm, I'm looking it up here. I have a, a title in the study guide here where I say, St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. This is a heading, not a title, but a heading in the study guide. And this is part of the litany, one of the litanies um, that the church prays that we call Joseph Mary's most chaste spouse. I want to clarify for our listeners, I think this is a great opportunity because Blake has mentioned that his father went in the direction of uh, indulgence and licentiousness, introducing him to Playboy magazine, but his mother was, was he didn't use the word, um, how, how did he explain that? He said, my mother was reserved in matter in such matters or... Yeah. He just said, very reserved. Very reserved. So we have right here in, in his own experience, what we at the Institute, we have the language of speaking of the three choices. What do we do with Eros? Most people think you only have two choices, indulge it or repress it. And it seems like Blake was caught right between these two different approaches. His father took one, his mother took the other. There's another way, open it all up to be redeemed. And when we hear Joseph was Mary's most chaste spouse, if we think of chastity as something repressive, then we hear Joseph Joseph was Mary's most repressed spouse. <laughs> this is not Joseph because this is not what the church means by chastity. Chastity does not make a person asexual. Chastity is the proper integration of one's sexual powers, one's sexual desires, integration with the truth and dignity of the person, right? And I, I have a quote in the study guide here from, from, from Bishop Fulton Sheen that I want to read here. He says, when one searches for the reasons why Christian art should have pictured Joseph as aged, we discover that it was in order to better safeguard the virginity of Mary. Somehow the assumption had crept in that senility 
was a better protector of the virginity of Mary than adolescence. Art thus unconsciously made Joseph a spouse chaste and pure by age rather than by virtue. To make Joseph appear pure only because his flesh had aged, Fulton Sheen says, is like glorifying a mountain stream that has dried up. <laughs> the church will not ordain a man to the priesthood who has not his vital powers. The church wants men who have something to tame rather than those who are tame because they have no energy to be wild. It should be no different with God. Instead of being a man incapable of love, St. Joseph was a man who was on fire with love. Instead then of being dried fruit to be served on the table of the king, Joseph was rather a blossom filled with promise and power. He was not in the evening of his life, but in its morning, bubbling over with energy, strength, and controlled passion. Right, that's the key right there. Controlled passion. Passion that is directed towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, Fulton Sheen concludes this way. He says, Mary and Joseph brought to their espousals two hearts with greater torrents of love than had ever before coursed through human breasts. Mm. Uh, the point is this, and Blake, I think that you're already experiencing this, that Joseph is a real man. He's a real dude. He had real passions, real yearnings. And to say he was Mary's most chaste spouse means not that those passions and yearnings were extinguished, but rather they were inflamed with agape. They were inflamed with sacrificial love. Christ came not to douse the flame of our passions. He came to set us on fire with true passion, the passion of Eros that has been inflamed with agape, so that erotic love is not squelched or erased or eliminated, but purified, redeemed, uh, brought to fulfillment in agape love, right? And if anybody doubts what I'm saying, I beg you, I urge you, please to read Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical, God is Love where he shows us that the true Christian path is the unity, the integration of eros and agape. This is our faith. Blake, you're already experiencing this. Stay, as I said earlier, keep riding that wave. Joseph will take you the whole way into the fullness of the integration of eros and agape. And that kind of love is the love that heals. That's the kind of love that your wife needs to experience from you to, to further her own healing. So, mm. brother, you're in our prayers. Keep going. Amen. Our last question is from Jose. He says, I'm Hang on, hang on. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. I know who this is. Okay, yeah. And I want to say something about it. Go right ahead. This is Jose and Anna from Portugal. And this is a fun story. I, I was sharing earlier that we just got back the TOB Institute team from our pilgrimage to Fatima in Portugal and Spain. And one night out on the big plaza in front of the basilica where they do the candlelight vigil, and this is where the apparitions actually happened in 1917, there are thousands of people out there. And some of our fellow pilgrims ran into Jose and, and Anna. And they had driven apparently a few hours in hopes that they would run into our pilgrimage. They had heard 
about our pilgrimage through the podcast. They knew the dates we were going to be there. They drove to Fatima in hopes that they would get to run into our pilgrims. They did run into our pilgrims. I, however, was not with those pilgrims, so they filmed a little video, which I've watched. Uh, Jose, I just want to say to Jose and Anna, I'm so sorry I didn't get to meet you in person, but I'm so glad you did connect with our pilgrims, and they submitted this question to the podcast through that video. So here you go. Here's our, here's our question from Jose and Anna. Jose says, I'm a teacher in a non-religious school. How can I introduce the themes of John Paul II's teaching on sexuality in this context? Brother, very, very important question. And we could even broaden it beyond just your context and, and teaching in a secular school. How do we bring John Paul II's teaching to a secular world, to atheists, to people who have no faith whatsoever, or again, in your context, Jose, as a teacher in a secular school. I would urge you, Jose, to read, if you haven't already, spend time with John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility. This is a philosophy book, which means he's not drawing primarily from Scripture. He's simply drawing from human experience and human reason to make the case for authentic love. Uh, what does love really look like? He says the difference between love and love's counterfeits is the difference between honoring the person as someone who is indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable, and using the person as someone who is dispensable, replaceable, and repeatable. Now, I'm sure if you're a long-term listener of this podcast, you've heard Wendy and me use these words before. If you're new to the podcast, let's try to enter into these words. Indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable versus dispensable, replaceable, and repeatable. It's the difference between something and someone. And the word we use to distinguish thing, something from someone is the word person, right? The human being is a person. And John Paul posits that the person has such a dignity that it is a violation of the person to treat the person as a means to an end, as an object for use. When we use something, we get what we want out of it, and then we dispense with it because things are dispensable. Things are also replaceable. If you break your microwave oven, you dispense with it and you replace it with another one just like it, or even new and improved, right? Uh, things are dispensable and replaceable. Things are also repeatable. There are a million of the very same model of microwave oven that just broke, right? But the human person is the kind of being that is indispensable. And this is confirmed in our experience. When someone uses us and then dispenses with us, it hurts. Why does it hurt? It hurts because we are the kind of being that should never be dispensed, thrown away. Um, we are the kind of being that is unrepeatable and, and 
and, and unreplaceable. Why does it hurt when, when somebody dispenses with us and then replaces us with somebody else? Because we're irreplaceable. Why does it hurt when somebody treats us as repeatable, as if, as if we're just some model of a certain kind of product? Because we're not those things. And this has a lot to say, but one thing I want to point out is we should be paying attention to the pain that we are in. And I want to say to you, Jose, that this is a great in to proposing the Catholic teaching on the human person. Mm -hmm. Our pain points are an indication that something is not right. We could put it this way. The Catholic Church's teaching on sex is demonstrated by the pain the culture is in that has rejected it. And not just the culture in the abstract, but the pain that individual human beings are in who reject the Church's teaching. Uh, here's a silly way to put it, but if you, if you comb your hair with a chainsaw, there will be some indications that you shouldn't have done that, mm. right? If you put your hand on a hot stove, there will be some indications that you shouldn't have done that. But here's, here's the problem. When a culture sells us a counterfeit version of love, it will also sell us, at the same time, all manner of numbing agents to prevent us from recognizing the pain we're in. That's the only way the illusion can continue. So, Jose, you don't have to appeal to faith. You don't have to appeal to the scriptures. You don't have to appeal to the teaching of the Catholic Church. You can appeal to human experience. You can invite your students to do a little experiment. And it's the experiment that I did in 1988 when I was a freshman in college that changed my life. I decided to stay sober for one weekend so that I could observe what was really going on on the college campus. In other words, I decided to remove the numbing agent mm. so that I could actually feel my pain and observe the pain that other people were in. And I saw it and experienced it firsthand. People are in pain and we're getting drunk to numb ourselves to the pain. And that pain, as I allowed myself to feel it and see it and witness it in others, was so acute that it sent me on a journey asking big questions about why is this causing so much pain and there's got to be another way to live. And that led me to the teaching of St. John Paul II. And in discovering his teaching, I found a man who was able to put into words my own life experience. And he was able to unfold a path for me towards true integration, towards recognizing my own dignity and the dignity of others. Not that I, I live that perfectly because I'm fallen like the rest of humanity and I struggle to live it perfectly, but he's given me a vision to aspire to. He's given me a, a path to follow. And when I fall, I repent, I go to confession, I pick myself up, and I keep going. But that's just, you know, in the context of a podcast giving some initial food for thought, begin by reflecting on people's experience of being used, of being treated as dispensable, replaceable, and uh, repeatable, and then propose the alternative. What does that alternative look like? What does sexual union, what does sexual activity look like when both persons 
are treating one another as indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. When you start to do the math on that, and you start to really do justice to the human heart and what we're made for and what we long for, it starts to look a heck of a lot like what the Catholic Church has been saying all along. Hmm. It's so true. And I think it's a it's a gift to be a teacher in a school where you see um, the same students for a longer period of time. Not everything is riding on the presentation of one lesson. And it's a powerful truth that many times the person is even more of a message to students that sticks with yes. them than any lesson that is consciously taught right. by the teacher. And so Jose, by prayerfully integrating the theology of the body in your own life, you will have a way of responding to, praying for, seeing the personhood of your students that at least some of them will notice. And that lesson will already be reaching Beautiful. their hearts, if, even if unconsciously. And so to trust in that and to grow in that, and even ask the Lord to give you a little glimpse of that grace flowing through your gift of self is all a beautiful part of this process of being a teacher and sharing the light the Lord has given you to shine in this world. Amen to that. I'll, I'll sum up what I was saying and what Wendy is saying by pointing to one wonderful line in Love and Responsibility, where John Paul II says, if we are to embrace the true vision of human sexuality, man must reconcile himself with his natural greatness. Mm. Jose, be a witness to your students of their natural greatness, of their true dignity. Be a witness to them of what it means to, to, to be a person, a person with unrepeatable dignity, a person who is indispensable and irreplaceable. By the very way you interact with your students, by the very way you, you look at your students, seeing them as persons, not as things, by the very way you treat your students, as Wendy said, you're, you're teaching them much more by the, the witness of your own life than by any conscious lesson you could ever teach them with words. The words help, but the witness goes far deeper. I'm reminded here of something St. Paul VI said. He said, what the world needs today is witnesses more than teachers. Mm -hmm. If someone will listen to a teacher, they will listen to the teacher because that teacher is also a witness. So witness to your students, Jose, their great dignity, and they will listen to you all the more as a teacher. We hope this episode has blessed all of you listeners today. If it has, and if you think it would bless someone you know, will you hit that share button? And here's something else that can help expand our listenership. We want to get this good news to as many people as possible, and you can help by leaving a review of our podcast wherever you listen to our podcast. If you leave a review, that helps the algorithms to get this podcast out to more and more people. Mm -hmm. Until next time, everybody, you know how we sign off our show, but I'm going to flip it this time. Wendy's going to say it. <laughs>
Remember, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.